Yes, it is. And welcome back. My producer, Bill, is uh, just uh, pointing out uh, what he brings to the show. Sir, you are the tutti to tutti capo. We can't do it without you. We appreciate you very, very much. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman are our in-studio guests. And uh, I will dispense – well, no, I won't. Hugh is the former mayor of Tempe, an educator, lawyer, and civic activist in town, among many other things. Lewis Hallman is the managing director of Inside Analytics, amongst many other things. We have them every Tuesday. But this gentleman, Hal in Phoenix, has been on hold forever. I want to give him an opportunity to speak and maybe perhaps set some of the stage for our discussion. Hal, if you're still there, first of all, thank you and welcome. Uh, thank you. Uh, on the question of uh, whether the, uh, uh, the, the left, uh, w- with the, their, their policy uh, on uh, on uh, 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 the, the, uh, they, they, I want to tell you that uh, what my note uh, says is on a, would... what my note on the call says is that uh, the left's position on abortion is going to drive Hispanics to vote Republican. Hugh, do you have a position on that? On whether or not Hispanics will be driven to vote Republican, so on the issue of abortion, uh, correct. This, this may be this may be a grenade the left w- may not have wanted to take the pin out of. And the irony is that this challenge dates back to 1984 for me, when I was working for Reagan Bush, and uh, the president of the United States, Ronald Wilson Reagan, was leading in 48 states against Walter Mondale. And trailing in only two states, Minnesota, Walter Mondale's home state, and California, where President Reagan had been governor. And that state was moving ever more leftward. And so we were having trouble in those two states. So I went out to California with a Skunk Works team, figuring that we'd let Minnesota go, but it would be an embarrassment if uh, President Reagan lost his home state. And we did some work out there. And one of the main foci of our effort— was to look at the Hispanic population there and see what we needed to do to convince them uh, as a population to move more to the Republican Party and President Reagan in particular. Heavily Catholic, heavily pro-life, work ethic uh, uh, that is strikingly Republican in its sense of, 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 as Lewis properly criticizes, work hard and you can achieve all kinds of things independent of whether or not you have the, uh, the wherewithal, and other things that line up perfectly with the Republican Party as values go. And I'd poll and look and talk, and it was, you know, every value system, Republican, 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 who are you going to vote for? Democrats. Mm-hmm. And it is a it is not a marketing problem. It is that sense that everyone today more easily we can see will bend toward their biases and justify their choice, dispensing with 95 percent of the information and hang on to that 5 percent that justifies their choice. And it tended to come from the the biases came from how they got here in the first place and a and a sense of what the Democratic Party was. And that tie was John Kennedy, conservative, fiscally hardworking, Catholic, uh, pro-life, all of – and that was where they still were um, 
focusing. Uh, they had imprinted on John F. Kennedy as the Democrat representing the Democratic Party. And that still has some sway in that community. So there's something I'd like to add on that as well. Um, when you, you kind of paint the picture of that equilibrium of uh, Hispanic voters consistently being Republican in inclination but voting Democrat uh, sort of – at the at the at the box office uh, ballot box, excuse me, or box office, or box office. <laughs> you know, either way, um, you know, one of the things that that I think is driving that that because because the, the question you have to ask at that point is why is this happening? And despite you know, in spite of what should be common sense, you know, inclination, and and I, I think that that is answered by two things. The first is political heritability, in which we we generally follow the political leanings of our parents. Case in point here. Um, and then also the sort of initial endowment in, in sort of the, the generational model, um, particularly if you go back in time uh, when we had more uh, immigrant, uh, immigrants as a, as a higher proportion of the Hispanic population, the basket of goods and endowments that Democrats offer is consistently more attractive to incoming Hispanics, which gives them kind of a, a large first mover advantage. But what data from Texas actually reliably shows is that you know, once you get into second and third generation uh, uh, naturalized uh, citizens, um, they start to shift fairly reliably Republican, which is one of the main reasons that Texas has held on as red and as arguably as purple as it has been in so long has been that that kind of shift in the demographic structure of the, the Hispanic vote. And the other thing I, I think that I'd like to bring up is the massive tactical overreach uh, known as Black Lives Matter part of the Democratic Governing Coalition, because what it typically is made up of, the, the, the Democratic Coalition, it has lots of different identity groups with lots of sort of mutually uh, inconsistent objectives. And by selecting African-Americans as sort of the singular group upon whom all political favor must be shown, they've indicated to the rest of the coalition that their limited political capital is not going to be spent on bettering everyone's position. And that reality, I think, combined with the high social uh, 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 conservatism in, it in the population will probably drive more and more Hispanics to the Republican side, particularly as a higher proportion of them become naturalized citizens and as these issues come more into the fore. Well, I think you are correct in that analysis, except that you run crashing into cherry picking your data because California is the opposite of the Texas experience with the same demographic. And that's what I was working on in 84 um, was the fact that we had first generation, but now second and third generation, California and Texas being leaders in the immigration elements. Texas, not because it was Democrat and, quote, liberal, unquote, but because they needed the workforce and was historically, uh, due to just the history of Texas, more heavily Hispanic, uh, natively. And then you had California going through that same process. And it was quite the challenge to deal with. And it is more about that imprinting and that heritability piece of it, uh, although your particular example also, again, uh, ignores two out of three data points. Um, but uh, with, uh, with the heritability issue, I have three sons, and only one of them is reliably in my camp. You know, uh, the point another, is that another... Hispanics are uh, – it's a problem that we have across the board, and it's not about Hispanic or not. It is how we message to voters who start in the Democratic camp. But of all people, Donald Trump 
was the one who bridged that gap most effectively with blue-collar workers, with blacks, with unions. Hispanics. Unions, but, all of it. There's a third element, and it's education. The irony is Texas used to be kind of known for its Democrats. Uh, John Tower became a Republican late in life. Lloyd Benson was uh, Michael Dukakis's uh, vice presidential running candidate, one of the more famous governors before the Bushes was Ann Richards. And California at the same time used to be known for its Republicans. Of course, Ronald Reagan and Senators Hayakawa and Pete Wilson and Duke Magian. And, and, and these things changed, I would submit, in part because of the differing education systems in those two states. Um, interesting survey was done about this generational uh, business, uh, Lewis, a few years back. Mark Krikorian wrote it up for The Wall Street Journal that when people entering the ninth grade from other countries were coming to uh, uh, America and in states with heavy, heavy immigration populations, Florida, Texas, California, they would identify, they were proud to identify in the ninth grade as Americans. By the time they graduated in the 12th grade, they were using the hyphenated appellation. They were African-Americans. They were Hispanic-Americans or Mexican-Americans of, of the, the parlance of the time. And, and I think Texas did a very good job with its education system in resisting a lot of the stuff that California, being the avant-garde place that it is, turned so much against. And I wonder if that comes into play, too, what we're doing in our education system, which, by the way, was designed originally, at least in, in large part, to take these immigrants and teach them how to be Americans, something not only are we failing our immigrants, we're failing our Americans with. I, I'd answer that. Can yes, you do education? it on the other side of the screen? I will, but education has a huge chunk to do with that. And it's not just an education system to educate uh, immigrants to become Americans. It was designed to educate Americans to understand Americanism. Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson agreed on that point. You betcha. I'm Seth Leibson. They're the Hallmans. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman are my guests. Hugh, going on the break, you were making a good point about our education system. I was saying in part, the success of so many of the immigrant community was an education system that was designed to help educate them about America. And your point, which is a better one, which is yes, but also and really in the first place to educate Americans about citizenship in America. And the one statistic I – you know, I, I, if there's a speech I give that I don't use this, I, I, I don't know if it's ever happened. But I think it's the worst statistic in education um, today, which is that – According to, you know, you're familiar with the um, uh, National Assessment of Education Progress, known as the, the nation's report card, or NAEP, 50 percent of high school seniors, 50 percent, half of them, uh, get an F in American history. And so the point I always make uh, on this statistic is that um, we can talk about illegal aliens, and we should, and it's important, but we're making aliens of our own citizens right here with our education system today. Right. We have alienated them to the point that they no longer participate actively in the public arena and debate. And when they do get geared up, they go break windows. Um, we saw that certainly last year now a year and a half ago almost, uh, with the summer of, of great pain for those of us who believe in peaceful protests that uh, terrorism and uh, destroying public property and private property for that matter becomes redesignated as peaceful protesting and people who don't fire a shot or uh, break windows are terrorists. So we have now reversed the use of the language in part because our education system is allowing that. 
that it is not just failing to educate. It is now inculcating values that are anathema to the American system. Yeah, I, that the, this this language changing business. It's kind of interesting of late, isn't it? Nineteen eighty four. It really is. I was writing down just a few samples when I was talking to uh, my earlier guest, Professor McClay. He's a history professor over at Hillsdale, and I was thinking about yeah these 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 changes in language. Gender affirming is actually encouraging gender changing. Uh, speech is now violence. Uh, there's going to be a vote in the Senate tomorrow on abortion. Uh, the pro-life position is now the anti-black position, the Democrats are telling us. And violence is mostly peaceful. It reminds one, of course, of the Ministry of Truth, which we now also have. This is the uh, the concept I was bringing up last week, the notion of conceptual drift, there right, you where you take a take a, a concept that has a set of of sort of core notions attached to it and by the process of either uh, adding additional sort of legs to that or or by modifying the principles already inside it, you're able to then sort of transmute the term over time. And 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 in that transmutation, uh, we're 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 losing a lot of a lot a, a lot of learning, and we're losing a lot of our politics. So yesterday, Vladimir Putin re, uh, gives gives a gives you know this this annual war victory speech that he does. And that they do in Russia, and he talks about fighting the Nazis in Ukraine and the Nazis in the United States of America. Everything uh, bad is now Nazi. This is this is a game that the left in America has picked up on as well. It would be a wonderful teachable moment if we could take either his speech or anyone's speech uh, that invokes Nazi and actually talk about what that means and what that is. I I, I think what they will come to learn is that expanding a vote from nine people to 7,500 people on a divisive issue is not fascism, is not Nazism. I think that what they will come to learn is that uh, uh, lowering uh, to historically low levels black and Hispanic and female unemployment is not Nazism. And I think what they'll learn is that destroying uh, statues and altering dates is, not, is, is, is Nazism, but it's on their side. It's it's an amazing thing they have done with language. Orwell wrote 1984, but he also wrote about politics and the English language and the abuse of the English language to pervert our politics. Well, let's see. Let's just touch on, for example, the Putin speech. Yeah. So here's a man who is now turning the uh, Russia back into the Soviet Union and authoritarian regime. I happen to have the great pleasure of being on Red Square in 1995 on May 9th, uh, May 8th and 9th, and that was. Victory in Europe Day in Russia celebrated in the way that would have made us all proud with the leaders of effectively the G7 all there for that one event and 10,000 World War II veterans, men and women from Russia, fully decked out in their medals, celebrating the fact that they had stopped Nazism. And from that moment to today, we've seen Vladimir Putin turn everything on his head on its head in the very same way we've seen our own country today have the same process. You've mentioned it. How did speech become violence and violence become speech? Because a year and a half ago, that's exactly what happened. People who were criticizing the destruction of public property, the destruction of a courthouse in Portland, Oregon, the destruction of the mall in Scottsdale as, as apparently the standard of what we had to do in order to overturn racism. Mm-hmm. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. 
And anyone who's approaching that from a logical, uh, rational basis is struggling today because that's no longer an acceptable approach. And I, I'm puzzled even how we continue to, to have a conversation when language has been turned on its head. I don't think they want the conversation, which I think Correct. explains the censorship because the conversation is their greatest enemy, right? As Havel said, Vaclav Havel said, if lies are what the system is built on, then the greatest enemy to it is truth, which is why it must be suppressed at all costs. Yes? Uh, Correct. I'm very sympathetic to the notion that, that what we see a lot today bears pretty significant resemblance to the kind of late 19th century, early 20th century moral panics okay. that that sort of overswept the population. Like you, you see a lot of the same behavior um, around uh, uh, the notion of racism today, particularly in like fashionable urban circles that you would have seen among the very same circles in the time leading up to prohibition, for instance, right? It, it's the same kind of uh, uh, puritanical impulse there's actually kind of a, a i would argue that it's in fact it's more the cocktail party circle right you, ironically yes. about uh prohibition that uh, it it those processes have taken place not just in our policy but also in our economics so there's, a, there's a fabulous idea that I, I encountered recently called the idea of luxury beliefs and that mm-hmm. the idea that once our, once uh, uh, material circumstances have improved sufficiently as they have where it's impossible to tell if someone is wealthy by looking at them. One of the greatest ways for the privilege to 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 document distinguish that, themselves, distinguish yeah. themselves, is to hold ideas that if regular people hold, held them would make their lives absolutely unmanageable. And so one of those might be that I think socialism is a good idea. If I'm insulated enough from the consequences of my beliefs that I can hold them, right, that then shows to you and the rest of the world that I am indeed a very, very privileged and upper crust Fences person. Fences and walls are bad ideas for everyone exactly. else. Exactly. Guns right. are bad ideas for everyone else except my private security. Right, exactly. Uh, we are, don't want to have carbon and, footprints you know, except for my in, private Instant jet. on access abortion is great, even though it hurts the low you know, the, right. the lower classes dramatically. Right. Let me pick up on that because I thought on luxury beliefs, I thought you were going to take it in a different direction, but I bet you have a thought on this too, which is what happens when your society becomes so successful you can engage in massive uh, disorienting conversations of upheaval over things that might be considered luxurious or top shelf. For example, when we were debating racism in this country and how to eliminate it, we went after Dr. Seuss. I'm Seth Liebson. They're the Holmans. We'll be right back. Consumer prices surged to 8.5% in March, the fastest pace since December 1981. Wholesale inflation, 11.4%, an even more ominous trend. Also, the markets have shown runaway inflation and drastic measures by the Fed by dropping up to 1,000 points in a single day. That's your investment security being flushed, which is why I recommend diversifying with physical gold from the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group. Gold holds its value traditionally when the dollar falls and economies fall. Don't let inflation steal your savings while liberal policies damage the financial markets even further. Diversify your investments today with physical gold and precious metals. 
the only gold company I recommend, Midas Gold Group. It's the gold company that Seb Gorka, I, and thousands of you already know. Check them out at MidasGoldGroup.com or call them at 480-360-3000. Lewis Holman is our guest. You had to um, take a call. But, Lewis, going into the break, we were talking about luxury beliefs. I wanted you to put a cap on that before we go into a few other things and feel free to say what you were saying about when a society what what is it when, when the the luxury belief is when a society uh restate it you, so you restate so the idea of behind luxury belief to mean something different go ahead is that when when you have a society that produces so much material excess that it's actually difficult to distinguish between social class yeah. right that the very rich you you, you know you, they don't really look visually different anymore. Right. That one of the ways that they can distinguish themselves is by the adoption of lunatic ideas, okay. the, the types of ideas that uh, if if other people of lower or different social strata adopted them would render them insolvent. Right. That would that would ruin them. Mm-hmm. You know, some of these ideas might be that unfettered abortion is is a useful tool for uh, eliminating pregnancy, which might be perfectly viable for them, but does, you know, horrible, horrible things to, for instance, the, the African-American community, the Hispanic community, it, everywhere. It's really been quite appalling. Uh, others might be that um, uh, redistribution is the best way to fight inequality, mm-hmm. right? That if, you know, they're welcome to hold that, mm-hmm. but they don't actually have political or monetary skin in the game mm-hmm. that, that actually then would... would Cause them to actually face the cost. Defunding of they police impose. for everyone. But that's a, that's a perfect example of a yeah. luxury relief. Yes, defunding the police is a, is an effective way to combat crime. And 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 borders and sovereignty only matter when it's your neighborhood. Another good one. Yes, I thought I I, I think that's really valuable, and I and I like that notion. I also thought it allowed the concept of luxury beliefs, at least as I heard heard the term for the first time today. I also thought about it in in in. In, in the context of things a successful society can afford to play with. Um, mm-hmm. it, it might be a cognate to what you're saying. But, for example, this tear against racism uh, that we have been on, the campaign against oh, racism oh, okay. is in and of itself a great thing because racism is in and of itself a terrible and an inimical thing. But when the uh, demand for it is outpacing the supply, we engage in um, lunatic ideas and what I guess I would call luxury beliefs where it's so pervasive and so prevalent you can't see it. It is now systemic and implicit. So I, I have a kind of a related concept that, that sort of parallels this. I don't know if there's a real term for this. I kind of think about it as like Maslow politics and the idea – are you familiar with Maslow's hierarchy, hierarchy. of needs? Yeah, exactly. Right. So, you know, at the, at the bottom of this pyramid are, are sort of the shelter, food and water, the base needs that we need to remain alive. And as you get higher up the, 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 the hierarchy of needs, you eventually get to the top, which is self-actualization. And that one of the things that's kind of interesting to consider is that our society is so free from want at the lower levels of that hierarchy that our politics then – sort of moves away from the base questions that occupied our ancestors, right? The logistical question of how do we organize a society so that we don't all starve to death, right? right? Becomes how do we organize a society so that we all feel happy? Right. And those are very, 
very different questions. It's also not clear, for instance, that feeling happy all of the time is good right. or that it's society's role to make you happy, for instance. Right. But, you know, as we sort of keep pushing this continual inheritance that we've we've all kind of acquired jointly as a society, you know, it seems like it's it's sort of rolling up higher and higher up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so in, in some sense, you know, the, the politics that's being advocated is is more totalizing than ever. In yeah, that let's talk about that when we come back, especially how this country particularly has been able to erase differences um, in quality of life between rich and poor. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk about that when we come back. As we uh, go to break, let me put in a word for the good folks and the great product at Balance of Nature, their fruits and veggies, which I take every single day. Ten servings of fruits and veggies and one daily dose, 100% natural, not 99.9, from the capsule to the ingredients. I blame my great health on it, and you can too. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you're looking for a really great, unique investment opportunity with a remarkable return for investors, I want you to check out my friends at Y-Refi. I've spent a lot of time with these guys, and it is a fantastic product. It's a fixed, no-load interest rate, up to 10.25% for investors, all in a collateralized and secure portfolio. Y-Refi helps people who are doing their best to dig out a debt. And doing it the right way, doing the right thing and paying off their debts, doing so with dignity, even getting their FICO scores fixed along the way. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm run by really good people who are doing very well by helping others. And you can, too. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com or call 855-316-3087. It's a local company. You can visit them. You won't get a sales pitch. They're just happy to tell you about what they do because they love what they do. And if you get involved, you will too. Again, investyrefi.com or 855-316-3087. All right, Lewis, talk to me about you have these great concepts, and I love them. I learn from you every time you're here. Choice paralysis. Talk to me about how uh, how uh, luxury beliefs can lead to or a luxurious country can lead us into choice paralysis. So this is a, a kind of a concept that I've been puzzling over that, that life has gotten so radically different for us over the last 150 or so years that our brains are really very much out of their element. And so let me let me take the example of marriage, right? Like 500 years ago, your parents decided who you were going to marry or a matchmaker did. 150 years ago, you know, you maybe were starting to get some ability to exercise some sort of choice, but that generally was by and it was, it was not the case. It's only very recently in our species history, like the blink of an eye, really, that we've been marrying selectively and for love. Um, it's really, you know, very, very new. It's kind of that high, done, uh, high, high Maslow's hierarchy of needs reason to get married. Um, and so... You know the fulfillment the, rather the than obligation, which, right? Exactly okay. the the way in which we we assess this, you know, a major part of our lives. You know, the, there's a whole different set of strategies now that we have to come up with in order to to play this new mating game that kind of exists. And so, 
you know, now, for instance, uh, you know, I, I met my wife, you know, by hacking and reverse engineering OkCupid's uh, platform. We got married about a year and a half ago. And this is not right, this is not really something that, that most people, you know, do. Right. It, it, it's a very hard and, and, and difficult landscape now. Um, and the thing that, that I wanted to bring up about this is that, you know, Consider that 150-year-ago strategy where you don't really have a whole lot of choice. Now, correspondingly, you've got very little freedom over your life chances, but there's a lot more certainty kind of wrapped up in that in that choice. And one of the reasons I think that we're getting increasingly anxious, increasingly uh, despondent these days is that we have so much choice in so much uncharted territory that it really does become overwhelming past a certain point. It's very hard to take all of these new choices and do them well, right? A hundred years is not really enough time to distill a whole ethic and set of common sense around mating practices, like basically from the ground up. It also then kind of ties into a lot of the increased you know, uh, divorce rates that we've been seeing since the 1960s and the like, where we're now starting families for very different reasons and kind of working through the new ethic of how to do this. Um, the big push in this, I think, has come from the fact that we've gone from these kind of Dunbar scale, 150 people scale, sort of village environments of ages past into much, much larger, interconnected, globalized, urbanized society. And one of the things that's very interesting about whether it's an ethic or a system of governments is that the rules that work at small scales, at family scales, at tribal scales, if you try to upscale those two or three orders of magnitude and generalize them to the nation state, you know you very quickly find that very often those those rules and those heuristics break down, and so you need a different kind of governing ethic once you get beyond you know a, a certain threshold of people. Does this apply to noxious ideas too, or ideas that people don't realize are noxious, in the sense that we used to think in this country that a lot of our founding was, in Calvin Coolidge's phrase, settled. You know, when right. we talk about self-evident truths or natural right, these things are pretty much, you know, that's that's a settled issue. If it's a self if it's truth and if it's a natural right, it's a settled issue. And yet, having become such a successful country, even into the Roaring Twenties, when Calvin Coolidge was talking about this, it's about the same time, just shortly right thereafter, we started experimenting more and more with alternative um, theories of governance, particularly um, Marxism after World War II and relativism, which is the exact opposite of a country based or at least a theory based on natural right and truth, right? And I wonder if relativism is the ideological um, ideological analog to what you're talking about with choice. So I, I think that the reason you start to see a lot of the the sort of redistributionist policies, yeah. it has to do again with this Pareto distribution yeah. concept I keep bringing up, yeah. that when societies scale up to a certain point, if half of their output is generated by a square root of their number of participants, right? So if you've got 10,000 people, 100 of them do half of the work yeah. versus 10 people, three of them do half the work, Right. The larger a society scales, the more inequality is going to be found sure. and the more likely you are to start to see sort of the, the imposition of these very inefficient uh, redistribution efforts to try and address this um, just as a matter of, of sort of scale progression and trying to keep this. And so you didn't see a lot of these measures earlier just because there was no need to implement them. But once it became 
obvious that this was happening once the societies got so large um you you then start to get that that push for redistributionism and analogously i, I think the the moral relativism too you know once if ethic doesn't scale well in a super Dunbar world, in a, right. in a world where you've got you know massive, massive urban teeming hordes of people, then that is going to change the way that we have to think about morality and ethic. And right? that Particularly is what in a multicultural is, environment. That's exactly right? what we've been seeing. Anything can be had. Anything can be done. Anything is possible. Yes, of course. Good. All right. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. If you missed my uh, interview with Wilford McClay, professor of history at Hillsdale, uh, you can check that out at our website, 960thepatriot.com, as you can also uh, learn about how to share your uh, Memorial Day story with us. That might uh, uh, might get uh, read on air, 960thepatriot.com. And, Lewis, I'll uh, let you uh, close with a final thought. So. The, the kind of final thought that I have is that as I was talking about all of these new challenges that have arisen over the last 100, 150 years or so, a lot of the tools that we use to assess the world and to solve these challenges have arisen over that time also, right? The, the game theory as a discipline is really only about 70, 75 years old. The normal distribution was only discovered in like the 1880s. You know, regression analysis, the principal tool of econometrics – um, is, was developed in the late 1800s, but only really found its footing around sort of between 1920 and 1960. Um, and so, you know, you, you spoke about Calvin Coolidge saying that our, our founding was settled. But to my thinking, you know, these radical changes in our society are not settled. This has been a blip, you know, over the long span of humanity. And the tools that we have to analyze them are so new that we, we couldn't possibly have done the work sufficiently. It takes too long to develop a common sense and like a like a workable iterated ethic. But what that also means, you know, is that there's, there's a lot of room to fight over these issues. And overeducated stuff shirts do not then have a monopoly of truth on these issues. And that to me is the principal virtue of conservatism is remembering where we came from and what we're designed to do and marrying that to the modern problems is that, that we, we face now increasingly. And what it is that we are actually trying to conserve exactly. at the end of the day. Well done, Lewis Holman. Thank you all. Until tomorrow, God bless you. Class is dismissed.